The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, it has been negligent on our part that we have not talked about Zimbabwe in a very, very long time. And there is just so much that's going on. In fact, Zimbabwe is one of my go-to countries every day when I'm putting together our daily email newsletter. I can always count on some great news to come out of Zimbabwe. Let me just give you a rundown of some of the things that have been going on that will help set up our discussion today. There was a, a terrific scandal that happened over the past couple of weeks in Beijing when Vice President Constantino Chiwenga, who is both the vice president and the health minister. Now, mind you, last year, the very vice president who was in Beijing last week, made an announcement that said no senior Zimbabwean officials will be permitted to leave the country for medical care. Well, he and his entourage flew to Beijing, and lo and behold, somehow they got past the dragnet that the Chinese have for detecting COVID-19. Three members of his security detail tested positive for COVID-19. But once again, it revealed some of the problems that the Zimbabwean government is having in terms of their credibility when they say one thing, and they do something else. Juenga has been sick for a very long time, and he's been going to South Africa, to Singapore, to China for medical care, uh, all at great expense and, again, under tremendous secrecy. Zimbabwe has also been the second largest recipient of Chinese-made vaccines for COVID-19. 6.9 million doses have come to Zimbabwe. They've been more effective than any other country in, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa in securing supplies of Chinese vaccines. By the way, they're second only to Morocco. A very big deal has been uh, underway now also in the steel sector. Qingshan Holding Group will build a new billion-dollar steel plant that will be able to produce 1.2 million tons a year and employ between four and 5,000 people. Let's move to the power sector. Lots of news there. Big power outage last week and when the Huangai power station went down for 18 hours. Now, that Huangai power station is going to get some relief probably towards the end of the year, early next year, when a $1.5 billion expansion that's being built by Sino Hydro is done. Boy, that cannot come fast enough for power consumers in many parts of Zimbabwe as well. Chinese contractors are also building the Kariba South hydroelectric power expansion project and the Batuka Gorge power station. That's another hydroelectric station that's on the Zambezi River. So lots happening in the energy space. Uh, speaking of energy and coal, Kobus, a couple, maybe it was last year or the year before, I don't remember, we did a show on the Senghua Power Plant, which is a big coal-fired power station, $3 billion project that was going to be backed by the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China. Well, ICBC backed out of that, and this has been part of the massive downturn that we've seen in Chinese coal financing 
overseas uh, almost to nothing. In fact, the first six or seven months of this year, the Green BRI Institute in Beijing said not a single dollar was sent to finance coal projects anywhere in the world. That's the first time that has happened. Lots of tension has been happening on the environmental front. So there was an order that came down from the high court that barred the Chinese mining company Afroshin from extracting chrome in the Mavruadona wilderness. But despite the court order, environmentalists and journalists uh, have been going out there and saying that Afroshin is actually pursuing and going on with its mining activities. And this has sparked a row between the company and activists. There was a video that went viral a little bit, semi-viral on Zimbabwe Twitter a few weeks ago, and it was shot by Rumbi Takawira, who's a broadcast journalist and environmental activist. She published the videos on her Twitter page, and then it got republished on 263chat.com. She was in the Mavruadona wilderness, and here's what she said. So we're here at uh, one of the spots where these guys are mining and already you can see the destruction that they've caused to the environment. These are holes that are opened up and they're not closing these up anytime soon. And imagine an animal falling into a pit like this. Will it survive? I really don't think so. At the end of the day, we need to find sustainable ways of getting to the resources without jeopardizing other areas or other species that are surrounding the area. So that it cut off that way so quickly, but that's the nature of Twitter videos. But Afrosheen, boy, they were just furious about this. And they went on a tear. On July 25th, the company published a statement that singled out uh, 263Chat and the New Zimbabwe website. Uh, by They said they were calling the allegations of mining activities in the Mavurodona wilderness part of a, and I'm quoting here, a coordinated media campaign against the company. Here's what they said in response to the charge. Number one, no effort was made to contact us in the production of the reports. Number two, the mention of our company is gratuitous, unfair, defamatory, just to grab attention. And Cobus, here's a very interesting point that they bring up in number three. There are serious racist, xenophobic, and hateful connotations regarding Chinese nationals, which potentially endangers not just investors, but also individual people of Chinese and Asian extraction. Those are quotes from the statement by Afroshin. Kobus, I guess what, what I just painted here is just from the past four or five months. I mean, there is so much going on here, but it really highlights the mix and the complexity that there's some great news, like four or 5,000 jobs in the Qingshan steel plant, and also some more distressing news related to well, these, these, these tensions over environment and mining in the Huangge National Park, as well as in the Mavurodona Wilderness. So very, very complex relationship right now, Gobas. Very complex. The um, I think also the the China Zimbabwe relationship when you go back um, into history is one of the most uh, complex ones in Africa. I think you know it it, it has very long history of, of cooperation. Uh, China's added support to Zimbabwe's anti-colonial struggle, um, and ch- we've seen Chinese companies being extremely um, extremely involved in Zimbabwe and the Chinese government being extremely involved in Zimbabwe. But we've also seen a long history of some of the darker sides of, of Chinese engagement in Africa, including including uh, a, a quite a significant kind of involvement of, of organized crime elements in in um, diamond dealings in the Marange field, for example. Um, so, 
you know, it's, it's a very complicated kind of mix of Chinese characters involved. Um, you know, not not least these uh, these kind of massive um, joint operations because because um, if, if I'm correct, Afrosheen is a is, is a joint company. Um, you know, and uh, where where there's kind of very powerful people in the Zimbabwean government frequently also involved in some of these joint operations. So it's a, it's a really complicated landscape. Well, there is a fantastic new resource that is now available. It was published by the Zimbabwe Environmental Law Association. Zela is a very influential environmental group. We had some of their folks on our show last year to talk about the Senghua Power Plant. Uh, they just published a book called The Handbook of Zimbabwe-China Economic Relations, Examining Chinese Investments in Zimbabwe Financial Services, Mineral Sector, Especially Gold, Chrome, and diamonds. One of the contributors to the handbook is Dr. Prolific Maruse, who is a political science lecturer at the University of Zimbabwe in Harare, where he teaches African political economy and international economic relations. Prolific, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. It's an honor to have you on the program. I'm also happy to be part of the program. You wrote two chapters in the handbook that provided a very broad overview of Chinese economic engagement in Zimbabwe, and then you wrote another one that was focused on the specific role of Chinese companies in the Zimbabwean chrome, gold, and diamond mining sectors. Now, in my introduction, I painted a rather somewhat complex negative picture of the current state of China-Zimbabwe relations, one that's a little bit tense. But I want to get your perspective as somebody who studies this up close in detail. You have a much better perspective than I do as to where we are in the current state of the relationship. Uh, thank you. Uh, the situation on the ground is really very complex. You're right. Because when you look at like the second chapter that you highlighted, we look at the just investment quantum from China to Zimbabwe. It's enormous. But then when you get to to visit the sites where the Chinese are doing their activities, uh, you know, it's 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 something else. It's something else. And um, the comment from the Chinese uh, company yeah, about xenophobia, probably it's something that's that could be there. And I think in approaching the handbook, it's something also that we we we, we, we became conscious of that we did not need to stereotype the Chinese because um, there was a lot of, you know, high risk um, for bias and uh, things like that. But the pictures on the ground, the things that we saw, you know, it's, it's something. And I think something like a handbook is important. And one of the conclusions we reach in the handbook is that it's important to track Chinese investments, not just Chinese investments, because there are also other countries that are investing in Zimbabwe. But I think uh, Chinese investments in Zimbabwe, there is real need to be uh, looking out uh, um, at what they are doing. And hence, we arrive at some conclusions like we need to talk about uh, responsible investment. Um, we need to talk about social inclusion. You know, the stories that are out there, the real stories are so are so harrowing. Some of them can be easily dismissed. Yes. But if you if you go to the ground, when you see houses that are cracking because of mining that's happening, uh, when you see mining that's taking place without the approval of, uh, of the authorities, uh, the proper authorities in terms of environmental assessment um, um, and, um, and other mining uh, uh, regulations that are supposed to be following, um, when you talk to the employees, that have been mistreated uh, in the mines. You know, you get 
you get something that's that said and um, you get um, the, the, the need to make this known to government and so the government can take uh, uh, control and also that even the Chinese authorities can also make sure that the Chinese small Chinese miners that are doing whatever they are doing in various places are also abiding by uh, humane uh, standards. So prolific. Um, when in in the the, the wider discussion of of Africa China relations, um, Zimbabwe is frequently cited as as um, as a, an example of a country where China managed to to find a lot of engagement because the because Zimbabwe had quite unhappy relationships with with traditional Western partners. So I wonder if you would mind updating that, like wh- where just as a, as a very kind of basic kind of you know thumbnail kind of you know introduction for for our listeners what is zimbabwe's wider international position at the moment like is zimbabwe still facing sanctions and and from where like what, what are the kind of constraints that are that limit zimbabwe's international cooperation with external actors Okay, so since 2001, Zimbabwe has been under U.S. sanctions and EU sanctions 2003. Um, so it's, it's real that uh, the country faces a lot of problems. But what's important, I think, to recognize is that Zimbabwe had a look east policy and some have called it a look China policy because China has been the sort of the friend that stepped out uh, when the West uh, reneged or moved out uh, of um, of the country. It divested. You find this divestment also happened in the mineral sector. We find companies like Anglo-American, Lonmin, etc. Uh, you find they, they pull out and um, the Chinese almost step out. Uh, to when these ones are pulling out. So the current position after um, after Mugabe, or maybe I skipped something a bit. In 2016, Mugabe chased out um, Chinese companies in the Shiazo areas because there was some bit of realization. And also in 2014, there was set up in a sovereign wealth fund because there was a realization that we needed to to find a way of benefiting the country uh, rather than pillaging the country and allowing uh, sort of foreign investors to come and just take without something remaining for the country. But you find in 2017 when Mugabe falls and then there is a new government, the new government begins to talk about a re-engagement and also engagement. So it's a multi-pronged approach. So it's a re-engagement with, with the West, but also continued engagement or strengthened engagement with the East, in particular with China. So you find the Chinese companies move back, in particular in 2020, uh, during the lockdown, you find they move back into mining gold, into mining diamonds, um, and the companies are, um, are there. So, um, and also during the, the lockdown, I liked your, your, your presentation of the recipients of uh, uh, vaccines in Africa, but Zimbabwe also received a lot of other things apart from, uh, from vaccines in terms of PPEs, uh, respirators, you know, uh, ventilators and things like that, that went a long way um, in assisting uh, during the, the lockdown. And by far the biggest um, measure uh, of investment has been in the energy sector uh, you know something totaling over 12 billion uh, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, of investments so there is something that's really been happening but also um, as much as the investments have been big there have been concerns raised by many Zimbabweans and people have taken the government uh, and the investors to court you know in terms of the opacity of the investments people don't know 
the the amount, the real term. So this kind of handbook that we had is not conclusive. Um, I I think it's it's tentative in many ways because it's difficult to actually know what's happening. So the government was taken to court. African Bank and other investors were taken to court, and the High Court of Zimbabwe judgment was handed out that the government needed to disclose. Uh, the kind of the amount of investments, the nature of investments, because um, it's only probably one uh, investment um, agreement with the Chinese that has been uh, ratified in parliament. That was in 2012 when it appeared like the 2013 elections and they could lose. So you could see how the Chinese were also preparing to make sure that they do not lose out. And I think in the long term, uh, the kind of strategy that the Chinese are using is very short, um, short-sighted, where they, they believe that if they are together with the government, then everything else doesn't matter. The people don't matter. We can just run a rough shoulder over the people. But I think it would have been strategic and much more wiser if they if they cement um, their investments in trust, in social inclusion, uh, in um, in ethical standards, such that um, some of these xenophobic uh, um, things that are happening against the Chinese, because I think in many ways they're xenophobic. But I've also learned something. Some of the perceptions are not just perceptions. You know, they have a real origin. When you visit places and you actually see things that are happening on the ground, when you talk to the chiefs in the particular areas, you you actually see there is a problem. And the Chinese authorities, the Zimbabwean authorities, they need to confront uh, that kind of thing at this present time. But I think going forward, because looking at the re-engagement problem, uh, problem, um, problems with the West, you know, it was assumed that the re-engagement would go well with the West that the USA and um, um, uh, and uh, Britain would would actually show up uh, or would welcome the re-engagement initiatives of the government of Zimbabwe. But it has not been so forthcoming. Um, so also one thing that that probably will be interesting to watch would be the American initiatives in terms of the Clean Network program, the Blue Dead, the Dot Network program, um, is an alternative to the BRI, to, to the Chinese. Uh, you, you know, in terms of re-engagement, how would that play out? Are the Americans going to change their approach? Because, you know, the Americans are shifting in terms of... Uh, in terms of uh, uh, of attitudes. So that's something to watch and it's something not clear. But I think in terms of relations, China is going to remain uh, permanently um, aged into Zimbabwean foreign policy and uh, their investment because already the kind of debt that they are owed by Zimbabwe and the kind of penetration in terms of supporting the Zimbabwean government and the Zimbabwean economy is so huge. You can't imagine that breaking in that topic. So I think for the foreseeable future, um, China is going to be a, a key, a key, a key actor. But if something were to happen locally, like a change of government yeah, and the ZANPF government is removed, I think that could spell some disaster in terms of the financial obligations or the investments that have been made uh, by by the Chinese. So, which is why I think it makes a stronger case for that that it's in the interest of China. To, to be strategically, uh, you know, invested in a, uh, in, a, in getting a lot of people on board uh, on its side, just um, other than the the government, that it's important for China uh, and the Chinese invest- investors to be doing the right thing. Most of the time, the right thing is just you know ethical, ethical uh, in terms of how many hours do people work, uh, you know, on the mines. Things like that. But these are not problems that are unique to Zimbabwe. We've been talking about in our 
daily coverage that we've been reporting on in the Democratic Republic of Congo. There have been a lot of problems in the minds of the maltreatment of of workers. There have been problems in Nigeria, Zambia, Namibia right now. Companies are going on strike. So this seems to be a a regional problem more than just a a country-level problem. It's interesting that you point out about the the need to balance out their relations beyond potentially the Menangagwa government and the and Zanu PF. People said that during the Mugabe era that the Chinese were so tight with President Mugabe and 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 they were they said once Mugabe's gone they're going to be screwed and lo and behold behind the scenes they were building up ties with Menangagwa and they did the same thing in the Democratic Republic of Congo is that while Kabila was in power they were building up the ties with Felix Tshisekedi. And you, you remember when Constantino Chiwenga and, and Menangaga himself didn't go, but Chiwenga went to Beijing prior to the coup. And no one really knows what happened there and what was said, but something was said. And then the coup went forward and Menangaga went into power. And the Chinese had a seamless transition. So it does seem like they've got some sophistication in how to manage these political power transitions. What do you look back on when you see the transition from the Mugabe era to the Menangagwa era? They handled that pretty well. Do you think that that was just a one-off or they can do it again? I think they handled that well. But I think what's making the difference uh, in terms of global affairs in general and in Africa in relation to the Chinese is their dollars. If they can pump the dollars into into whatever project is happening because I think that's the problem um, that's that was happening when Mugabe stepped out uh, Western donors uh, Western countries were prevaricating on who to fund how to fund so you find if civil society was broke in general then you find um, the faction Munangago's faction was not even sure of what was going to happen so I think as long as there is that kind of uh, hesitation on on the part of the West, and the Chinese do not hesitate in terms of partnering and supporting people that are willing to also, uh, you know, support their cause. Uh, I think they will always pump the dollars and always get uh, get the kind of support. I believe there is need to try to to track the investments. You know, this is the role that civil society can play, that other actors can play. What is on the ground? What is happening in in the back of beyond? You know, uh, in it's a mountains deep in Zimbabwe. What's really happening? Because there are communities that are there that are willing to talk, and I find some times when um, uh, some of these uh, communities have been empowered or have been educated, they have stepped out to report to organizations like the Zimbabwe Environmental Lawyers Association, and they've taken the companies to court. And they have won um, in court. Uh, sometimes uh, it's environmental issues. Sometimes it's uh, just that regulations were not followed. And these, com- these communities have won. So I think the scope really is to not really expose, but to understand, to know where, what is happening, who is doing what and where, and how are they doing it? Is it being done properly? I think those are some of the... Um, uh, probably key ways to to move out of uh, the trap of the dollars. Because if dollars are used to capture an elite, then probably if we widen the 
the net to include other people, many people. You know, you cannot capture many people. I think that's that could be a way out. Can, can you talk about a little bit about the position of civil society in in Zimbabwe at the moment? Um, you know, I'm I'm always I, I've done uh, for for my own research. I've done a lot of of, of reading from from Zimbabwean civil society, particularly on environmental issues, um, and I'm always really kind of surprised and, and heartened by by the the kind of level of work that's done by by Zimbabwean civil society organizations. It's really amazing. How how do they manage to get that work done? Um, where, where do a lot of their support come from, and what is their relationship with the government at the moment? Okay, so um, I have done a bit of work in terms of funding of uh, civil society organizations. So most of it is from OECD countries, um, and um, the relationship with the government for most. Uh, civil society members is, is is confrontational, and by extension, it's also confrontational to Chinese to Chinese um, uh, investors. But there's been there's been something that's been changing. I think we can trace it really in 2018 when donors stopped funding civil society the way that they used to fund in the past. There's been a shift uh, in terms of uh, how civil society is trying to to to, to do its work uh, in Zimbabwe, not just environmental activists, but even democracy activists, you find they they're trying they're trying to shift away from confrontation to sort of a creative kind of engagement where they're using a lot of a lot of ways. So that's the that's the current stage. So because for now, you find uh, environmental activists like in the area of mines, they're trying to approach the Ministry of Mines. In the areas of wetlands, they're trying to approach to work with the ministries of local government. Uh, yeah. You know, so there is that kind of uh, emphasis currently that probably we have been too confrontational in the past. And also we have been too confrontational. And when the funders abandoned us for a while, it did not really work out that well. So we are in this rut, in this kind of situation. So it's gravely in sort of in, in, in darkness for now, trying to, to determine what's really our position. Should we... Should we confront? Should we engage? How do we engage? How do we confront? Uh, you know, so it's it's really a tough situation for uh, for 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 Zimbabwean civil society. And I think something could come out in terms of a new way of thinking uh, and doing activism in general in Zimbabwe um, from this uh, kind of thinking uh, and processing that's that's currently happening. But also the, the problems with that kind of processing sometimes is that you don't really get work done. Um, so in the end, what you might have is a sporadic case taken to court here and there, uh, but the kind of consistency that would be needed to to ensure that um, good causes uh, eventually uh, triumph is sometimes uh, affected. Yeah, you've talked about the tension that exists between civil society and the perceptions, the public perceptions of the Chinese. And I'm just wondering, do you have any evidence that Chinese companies who you mentioned in the handbook are involved in almost every sector of the economy from agriculture, construction, mining, steel, energy, health, military, transport, ICT, tourism, culture. I mean, the list goes on. This is your list. Do you see any indication that those companies, the embassy, are doing what you're talking about in terms of trying to narrow the chasm between the great relations that they have with the government and the tense, complex relations that they have with civil society and the public? 
Yes, yes, yes. And this is why I think, you know, the Chinese government uh, can do more. Um, so I've participated in some forums where the Chinese embass- and the Chinese ambassador have really tried to explain to stakeholders and to engage stakeholders from civil society and also from the communities um, um, and also to get back to the Chinese companies themselves. So, uh, and sometimes you, you get an impression that some of the investors are out of control. Uh, they, some of them um, are just errant uh, and um, not acting really in, in an official capacity. And I think, but I think we can have, um, you know, more being done. And this is, not also, you know, it's not just the duty of the Chinese embassy, but it's also the duty of the Zimbabwean authorities to actually take the reports where it is happening and to enforce Zimbabwean laws and um, other environmental laws, international humanitarian laws, you know, that needs to be uh, a, a, the protection of citizens that's at stake. It's the protection of a national resource that's actually not that doesn't last forever that's also very finite and the society the communities need to to, to find a way of eventually uh, of eventually benefiting but also when you get to the ground and you're doing the field you get uh, you know you get a feeling that it's not just with the chinese it's also to do with uh, the french the italians you know the russians what they are doing as well so for example when, when, when you look at granite mining in in the area in mutoko there when you are talking to the people you know it's not just the chinese but the scale at which the chinese are present there because of their obviously close relationship with the government and they are not having broken uh, engagement since 2003 you find it's so pervasive, yeah. So, which is why probably we need to focus on the Chinese much more than other investors, but also highlight that the Zimbabwean government has an obligation to enforce uh, laws that are already enshrined in the constitution uh, and other uh, acts of parliament. Yeah, the, I mean that that's a really important point, um, and I remember, um, you know, Saya, where my my main employer, um, South African Institute of International Affairs, um, did research on Russian involvement in in Zimbabwe, um, which was published late last year, um, and it, there were very similar, um, you know, dynamics involved there, like also also you know relationships between government officials and and Russian kind of business owners or oligarchs. You know, being very instrumental in, in in whether a deal goes through or not, the, those kind of like to, to which extent are those dynamics um, apparent in 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 the case of of other investors too, like say OECD investors? I think uh, it's not it's not that clear. It's not that clear because our focus was on uh, on on the Chinese, but in the granite uh, area, you know, when we went to visit the community, people were talking about. Uh, the construction of a French library with granite from uh, from um, uh, from the uh, from the communities there, and how the French miners have 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 also behaved in many ways that are similar to the Chinese in terms of other treat um, the workers, employment hours, uh, how they pay. But probably what also stu- stood out is that the there was. N- there was no xenophobic statements in terms of negative perceptions. People seemed to be much more receptive to 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 the French, to the Italians, you know, that operated in some of the in some of the in some of the areas. So there's something also that's unique. Uh, probably it's, it's it's not unique, but it's a pattern that's unique to the Chinese as well. Is that 
they are big companies, but then they are also small, 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 small investors or sort of breakout. I think it's a strategy of the big companies to have small scale, small scale investors going out to buy chrome, gold, you know, or diamonds uh, from the communities or, or to, to, to be exploring um, uh, small mining claims uh, and uh, still bringing this to the major Company, so it's these smaller, smaller entities that are usually uh, out of the radar that tend to perpetrate some of these things. But also complaints have come from established companies like Sino Hydro. We find a lot of people that work at Sino Hydro when you interact with them, uh, the employees they have a lot of stories to tell about um, uh, you know skills transfer about how they are not. Um, uh, how they they would want to operate certain machines, but probably are prohibited sometimes from from knowing how those machines function. Because you know there are a lot of machines that are coming into the country, uh, a big equipment. It's Sino Hydro in Wange. It's Sino Hydro. It also in um, uh, in Kariba. So there is supposed to be some skills transfer to the locals, but there are problems that are happening there. Also with COVID-19, you find most of them at uh, both Sino Hydro uh, facilities, some of them, uh, actually all of them, were, were prohibited from uh, leaving campsites. Yeah, I can imagine what the Chinese embassy might say. Now, I, uh, I'll be upfront. I've never spoken to anybody in the Chinese embassy there. I've never communicated. I don't know anybody there. So, but I can imagine if what they might say, and they might say, you know, Zimbabwean people are pissed off with us, right? They, you talked about the civil society ties, but who else is bringing vaccines into this country? Nobody else was there to bring the vaccines. Who else is bringing in billion dollar mining investments and steel investments? Nobody else is bringing that in. Who else is bringing in the jobs, the investment, the money, certainly not the U.S. or the OECD countries because there's still sanctions on and there's still lots of tensions that are there. And so I get a sense that they might be very frustrated with this conversation because they say, listen, we can't control private companies any more than the American embassy can control private companies. There's this perception that the Chinese embassies have a magic wand and then they can kind of control every Chinese entity in the society that's behaving or misbehaving badly. So I just, I, I guess I'm trying to get my head around about the frustration that the Chinese might have in terms of hearing all of these tensions with civil society, and at the same time, all of the investments that you've talked about in the power sector, in the mining sector, the rebuilding of Robert Mugabe International Airport, the expansion of the Huanggei Power Station, all of this is being done by the Chinese. Huge investments. And yet, they, there's a sense probably of a little chip on their shoulder saying, you know what, people are giving us grief. Really? Really? I mean, do you see what I'm saying, where I'm coming from, why they might be pissed off? Yeah, 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 yeah. But also it's not the first time that that kind of thing is happening. So, you know, Zimbabwe's history is very long. You know, in 2008, we had the West crisis in terms of uh, economic relations that we are currently having now, I think. Yeah, because uh, and anti-Chinese sentiment back then was so strong. You know, in 2009, we actually had a government of national units and part of the people in the government of national units were anti-Chinese. Uh, you know, they did not like the Chinese. And hence you find the Chinese pushing in 2012 that um, the agreement for Victoria Force, the loan agreement for Victoria Force be taken to parliament. Although the agreement itself did not, was not, you know, did, did not appear in parliament. The Minister of Finance just presented and said there is an agreement that's been proposed by the Chinese. Um, 
and as, as, as parliament, we, we need to, re, to ratify it. So I think the Chinese are so clear about um, uh, about the state of affairs in Zimbabwe. They're not disillusioned about who loves them and who doesn't love them. But they are so practical and pragmatic about about it. If they can still get the... Yeah, you know the, the the return on their investment. They are okay with that. You know, in terms of steel, Zimbabwe almost supplies uh, China sixty percent of its demands in steel, and that's a huge uh, kind of supply. You you find also that you that the, the US is trying to to rethink its approach in terms of uh, chrome and other deposits in Zimbabwe. So the Chinese know they have a foothold ahead, and I think they are not worried about malcontents about discontent uh um, impossible uh you know turn of history and turn of events they I, I think for now uh they are saying if we can get a return on that investment uh, we don't we're not going to be emotional about it and i think they have tried not to be emotional about it but they are now trying to shift their changes and i think these are the things that are important to not you know, just just taking on from from your last point, um, you, you you're seeing this kind of stronger engagement, like you know them actually sitting in on on civil society meetings and and you know kind of engaging more with the community. Um, just just in you know in, in in general, where do you see the relationship between China and Zimbabwe going um, in the next five to ten years, and what role do you foresee China playing in Zimbabwe during this coming decade? I think um, it's a sad kind of situation that's going to happen for many people that hoped that ZANU-PF is going to go away. But I think ZANU-PF is not going to go away looking at internal political dynamics in Zimbabwe currently. Um, I think ZANU-PF is going to be there for some time. Um, they have promised to be there until 2030. And this is something that they are keeping, that they keep uh, hammering. Um, other opposition and etc. are in disarray. So uh, I think as long as the Chinese are um, as long as ZANPF is in power, the Chinese are going to to continue to enjoy a, a big role, a big influence in uh, in Zimbabwe, especially when we look at uh, faltering uh, re-engagement agendas with um, with Western countries. You know, if that continues to to teeter on the, the way uh, you know it is right now, we are going to see them coming closer to 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 Chinese investors. Dr. Prolific Maruse is a political science lecturer at the University of Zimbabwe in Harare, where he teaches African political economy and international economic relations. He was the contributor to two chapters in the new Handbook of Zimbabwe-China Economic Relations that was published by the Zimbabwe Environmental Law Association. Uh, I'm not entirely sure if the handbook is public. If it is public, I will put a link in the show notes. I will follow up with Zela on that. Uh, Prolific, are you on social media if people want to follow what you're reading and writing and some of the, your activities? Yes, I'm on social media. I'm not that active for, for personal security reasons, but um, yes, I'm on social media. Yeah. Are you on uh, Twitter by any chance? Yes, I'm on Twitter. What is your Twitter name that people, if they want to, uh, to reach out and connect with you? Prolific Mataru. Okay, I'll put a link to Prolific's uh, Twitter handle there. And uh, Prolific, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been so enlightening to hear you kind of give us an insight into this most complex relationship that China has in Africa. It's absolutely been fascinating. We really appreciate your time. Welcome. Thank you so much. Kobus, I love 
these kinds of conversations because I go into the conversation expecting one thing and I come out completely, my head spinning, turned upside down. Zimbabwe will do that to you. And Prolific is so great at laying out the complexity of this relationship. And it's really a great example of why it's so dangerous to boil down Chinese engagement in Africa or in a particular country like Zimbabwe to these simple narratives that we hear in Western capitals too often. So the Chinese have a terrible reputation in civil society in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwean civil society, as you pointed out in your comments, very lively, very dynamic, very good use of social media. The media there is quite active, so it amplifies quite a bit. But what we don't see, though, is what Prolific talked about, is how the embassy and Chinese companies on the flip side are also trying to engage. And again, that's not said to defend the Chinese companies. The point here is, as Prolific said, is that it's far more complicated than the media narratives that we pick up on social media and in the Zimbabwean press and certainly in the international press. Yeah, definitely. It's it's also clearly changing over time, you know. So so, you know, one one of the complications of Zimbabwe is that is that this kind of as 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 the prolific pointed out, the the the, the reengagement with Western powers has been quite kind of stop start. Um, it has hasn't been kind of there hasn't been a very, a very kind of robust reengagement um, from from both sides, um, and particularly there's there's been a lot of hesitance from Western actors to kind of step back into Zimbabwe, and. And that kind of means that things are developing on their own. You know, kind of like the the, the relationship between China and, and Zimbabwe, between Russia and Zimbabwe and other actors, uh, the, the, it's the, those are all running. You know, kind of they, they, they keep kind of the, these these actors keep learning more and more like how to do business in Zimbabwe and the particular kind of issues there. Um, and but but because there's so little Western engagement. On the Western side, it seems it seems kind of static, you know, um, and there's there's um, there's very little kind of mapping of of these changes um, in in English, for example. So um, you know, so, so it's really important, I think, to speak with with civil society stakeholders in Zimbabwe because they really are the people who are who are tracking these changes as they're happening. Well, I would not expect much change coming from the United States anytime soon. Zimbabwe is one of the only countries that I've seen, and I'm. I'm I'm new to Washington, so I don't know it that well. But that has a genuine anti-ZANU-PF lobby in it. So there's a, there is a lobby in Washington that really works to keep the sanctions up and to keep the distance from Zimbabwe so long as ZANU-PF is still in power. I don't see that for other countries in Africa. Uh, so that is interesting. And that, that tends leads me to believe that, that there's not going to be any change so long as Menangagwa and ZANU-PF is in power. Should the MDC rise to power one day, well, then let's see what happens. But for now, that's not going to happen. So I think that gives the Chinese some more breathing room. I still haven't figured out for the life of me why Zimbabwe, more than, say, pretty much any other country in the region, was the beneficiary of so many Chinese vaccines. This goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the program and I, I didn't introduce the concept of all-weather friends. Now, that's a designation that the Chinese assign to their relationships that go deep, deep back into, sometimes into the anti-colonial era. And that was the importance of the Mugabe relationship, was that Mugabe had a, had a deep ties that went all the way back to the anti-colonial struggles. And the Chinese were there. And it's these memories that the Chinese have that go back for 30, 40, 50 years that they hold on to, and it means something to them. 
And I, I just, I'm trying to understand the geopolitical strategic interests of investing, say, vaccines into a country like Zimbabwe versus other more strategic countries that are in play with the United States, say, like a country like Kenya or something else like that. That's been a mystery to me. I can't figure it out. But Zimbabwe does occupy a disproportionate amount of space in the China-Africa relationship. And in part, I think it does tie back to these historical relations. Yeah, it's also, um, I think, you know, Zimbabwe is has, has been known as a kind of a very poor kind of problematic basket case country for so long that has been its kind of stereotype so long that that people tend to forget that it that it used to be actually really a powerhouse an economic powerhouse um and particularly a, it, it was an agribusiness powerhouse um be, that outstripped south africa for example in, in in that sense um and so zimbabwe remains a really important country in the in the sub-region um and things being difficult in zimbabwe means that things are, are really difficult for the entire sub-saharan africa region because it is so central to so so many issues there um, and this this then kind of raises the the, the urgency of of the of for example the the lack of engagement from from the US and from Europe, um, you know because because it's not only Zimbabwe being involved being affected it's the entire southern African region being affected, um, and so you know so so and, and it, it it ranges into into all kinds of issues of cooperation and and a lot of kind of planning in relation to kind of concerted development planning for the entire sub-region so you know kind of the, the the net effect of all of this is that that china is even more central in these conversations in, in sub-saharan africa because of the kind of the 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 reticence uh, from from western countries to engage with zimbabwe um and you know and and, and that kind of like feeds into the, the 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 kind of centrality of china as a development partner to the entire region um you know so 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 it's it's, it's just it's super important to keep tracking these things and, and, and to also track how it then affects all of the, all of Zimbabwe's um, neighbors, particularly because Zimbabwe itself is the kind of the the, the how do you say a kind of gateway between between um, Southern Africa and Central Africa. Um, you know, so Zimbabwe has has uh, was historically, for example, was was uh, involved in issues in the Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, during the previous war. So so you know, it's one of those countries that link to all so many other countries and affect so many uh, other. So many other countries in the region that the fact that it keeps being so cut off from key development partners make, makes everything very difficult. Well, we're tracking this from two different angles. One, we look every day at the Zimbabwean media and what they're talking about in terms of Chinese engagement, some of the controversies, the advancements in infrastructure development, mining, and things like that. Also, Han Zheng, who is our China editor, is tracking it from the Chinese side. And there are quite a few WeChat groups that are up focused exclusively on Zimbabwe. So we're able to translate and to provide you insights into what these WeChat groups and the Weibo groups are talking about related to Zimbabwe, oftentimes very different than what you're hearing in the English language media. So both of those were bringing to subscribers of the China Africa Project. It's one of the benefits of being a subscriber is that you get that inside look from both sides. If you'd like to subscribe, we would be so honored. It helps support the work that we do every single day. We have a small team in Kenya, in China, and in South Africa, and me here in Southeast Asia that are working very hard to bring this to you. Subscriptions start at $75 a year for uh, students and teachers, and $149 for everyone else. We also have monthly options on that. Just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash 
subscribe. So, and if you have any questions, feel free anytime, whatever. Just give me an email, eric at chinaafricaproject.com, and you can hit Cobus up at cobus at chinaafricaproject.com. We love hearing from you for whatever reason, and we'd love for you to subscribe as well. So that'll do it for this edition of the podcast. Cobus and I will be back again next week with another episode of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, thank you so much for listening. discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>